the seed of the woman, the saviour, who would come as the saviour of the world, the first advent of Jesus. Wonderful good news. He would find a way of, provide a way of salvation back, to come back home. But God had something else to tell him, and he did it through Enoch. He's going to come a second time to bring all that wonderful hope together in his coming in glory. So right there in Genesis, and these two wonderful revelations from God, we have both the first advent and the second advent proclaimed, don't we? And together they make the best news of all for this world, don't they? Of course. So I said to those ladies, I am an Adventist because the first preacher of history, when God, this man who walked and talked with God, God revealed many wonderful things to him. But scripture records the one theme that dominated his preaching, the coming of Jesus at the end of time. It's interesting, isn't it? My second reason for being an Adventist is that all the prophets were Adventist. I think we will turn to this text of scripture, Acts chapter 3. Acts the third chapter. And verses 19 to 21. Acts chapter 3, 19 to 21. Speaking of Jesus, repent therefore and be converted that your sin may be blotted out so that the time to refresh him may come from the presence of the Lord. That he may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom the heavens must receive until the times of restoration of all things which God has spoken by the mouth of all his prophets since the world began. So all the prophets emphasized this great truth of the coming of Jesus, the advent of Jesus. First he was preached when he, when he was there as the saviour of the world, the first advent. And now he's been preached as the one who's going to come back again. All the prophets proclaimed it. And it doesn't matter which prophet you go to in the Old Testament, this was the hope that they looked forward to. Amen. You can speak of Abraham. Abraham, it says, he looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. Moses, as he stood there on Mount Pisgah, just before he died, he had a vision of the promised land that Israel will go to inherit. And then it said he saw a land of far distances when all the redeemed would be gathered together in God's eternal kingdom. He looked forward to that that day. Daniel, the great prophet of the Old Testament, proclaimed the first advent and he proclaimed the second advent. He put them together. And many of Daniel's prophecies focused on the final establishment of the kingdom of glory to come when the God of heaven sets up a kingdom that will never pass away. So all the prophets... Isaiah, wonderful visions of, of the new earth, of a restored garden of Eden, of, of a redeemed gathered together in the presence of God. Powerful pictures. All the prophets were Adventists. And so I said to those young ladies, do you think I made a good reason for being an Adventist, chose a, 
a good have a good reason for being an Adventist. All the prophets were Adventists. By the way, speaking of the prophets, Enoch was translated, wasn't he? Moses was resurrected and taken to glory. The significance is this, that Enoch's very experience of being translated illustrates the truth of what happens when Jesus comes. Isn't that it? And Moses represents those who will be resurrected when Jesus comes. So the very lie, the experience of these people illustrated a powerful truth they proclaimed. Question for you. Who is the head Adventist in Scripture? Thank you. Jesus, of course. Of course. Can you think of a text of Scripture, just one text of Scripture, that Jesus powerfully proclaimed concerning his advent? Yes, we define that. John 14, 1 to 3. Yes. But is that all Jesus said? I go and prepare a place for you and I will come again. Is that all he had to say? Every story he told, every parable he proclaimed, climaxed with the idea of his coming back in glory. Take just one. Remember the story of the sower? And what's the harvest when the sower reaps the harvest? What does that Jesus say they represented? When he comes to reap the harvest of the world. Every story, every parable. In fact, the disciples heard Jesus preaching and proclaiming so much about his coming back in glory. That was the focus of his mission. The first advent was to open the door to the second. They came to him and said, tell us what shall be the sign of your coming and the end of the world. And Jesus preached that powerful sermon. Where do you find it? Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Mark 13. Powerful proclamation. The, the largest sermon Jesus preached concerning the signs of his coming and the end of the world. Go to John chapter 6. Jesus over and over again emphasized again when he comes, he would raise up the redeemed at the last. And I will raise him up and I will raise. Look, he looked forward to that that moment when he could see that the, the result of the cross and the salvation of men and women. Powerful picture. That was his mission. That was his focus. We could say so much more about that. But we need to move on to some other reasons. <clears throat> By the way, when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate on trial just before they crucified him and Caiaphas challenged him are you the son of God as if to say who do you think you are Jesus said yes I am then he went beyond what the question asked he said, what's more, Caiaphas, one day you'll see the Son of Man coming in glory, in the power and great glory. Caiaphas 
went white with fear. And then he broke out in rage. What more do we need to hear? This, this blasphemy claimed to be the Son of God who had come in the glory and power of God at the end of time. He is worthy of death, and for that reason, they wanted to crucify him. You could say that Jesus died for the truth of the advent, couldn't you? He did. In fact, in the Bible, there are three reasons why they wanted to kill Jesus. One for claiming to be the Lord of the advent. The other claiming to be actually the creator of heaven and earth, God himself, which he was, God incarnate in human flesh. The third reason for claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath, which we'll come to in a moment. My fourth reason, I said to those young ladies, by the way, they had their clipboards there and they were supposed to be taking notes, but they weren't writing anything. I said, you girls won't get a very good mark. You're not writing anything. You know, they were so absorbed in what I was sharing with them. We need to understand something. How blessed and privileged we are to understand this wonderful truth in God's word. They had never heard it before. It was all new. I gave him my fourth reason for being a Seventh-day Adventist, or for being an Adventist. The angels are Adventists. Do you know that? Acts chapter 1 is one passage we go to. When Jesus ascended to heaven from the top of Mount of Olives there, and the disciples were watching him going up into heaven, and two angels came and stood by him. And what did they say to them? You men of Galilee, why are you gazing up into heaven? Don't you know that this Jesus who's gone up from you to heaven is going to come back just as you have seen him go? And as you go to Matthew 24 and you go to Revelation and so on, you see the angels are going to be powerfully involved when Jesus comes back. They're going to come with him to help gather redeem from every corner of the earth. They are looking forward to Advent, to the coming of Jesus. My fifth reason, I said, you know, all the apostles were Adventists. Now, we haven't time to look at all that the apostles said about the coming of Jesus. I want to just mention three. Peter, John, and Paul. Let's take Paul first. Paul wrote whole books. In fact, the very first two books he wrote, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, were focused solely on the coming of Jesus. That was the focus of those two books. Powerfully so. Beautiful promises, beautiful revelations given by Paul concerning what would happen when Jesus comes back. He wrote whole chapters, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, so powerful and so beautiful that Handel put it to music in the great oratorio, the Messiah. You know it, I'm sure. When mortal shall put on immortality, corruptible shall put on corruption, and we shall be changed. What a moment of glory that will be when Jesus comes back. 
Christ the first fruits, and then they that are Christ when? Ed is coming. That's Paul. Handel put it to music. What about John? By the way, when Paul died, the very last testimony wrote to Second Timothy, the very last thing he wrote, I have fought a good fight. You know the rest of it. What's the rest of it? Finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth has laid up for me what? A crown of righteousness, but not for me only, but for who else? All those who love his appearing. Powerful picture, isn't it? That was his dying testimony. Paul was an Adventist through and through. What about John? He wrote the gospel, he wrote those three little letters, and he wrote the book of Revelation. Wow, how can we encompass all that John had to say? Let's just quickly go to Revelation for a moment. What was the very first promise that Jesus gave to John in Revelation when he came to John on the island of Patmos? Revelation 1 verse 7, what does it say? Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. What a, what a moment, what a, and the, what a promise. And the book of Revelation now moves towards the fulfillment of that promise. It moved through history, countdown to the second advent. It shows Jesus ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. Finally move into a final work of the judge of this world as a judge of this world. And to come to Revelation chapter 19, it seems that the heavenly sanctuary can no longer hold. He bursts forth from heaven, riding on a great white horse, and all the angelic hosts with him. And a great cry goes up. Now the kings of this world, the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. That's it, isn't it? And on his side were on his side the words King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And John closes Revelation with the words of Jesus, Surely I am coming soon. John was an Adventist, wasn't he? He stressed this truth through and through. So I said to those young ladies, Do you think I made the right decision becoming an Adventist? And you know, I could see them nodding, Yes. I'm an Adventist because all the apostles were Adventists. They stressed this great truth. I give you my seventh reason. I'm skipping over one or two, but you can pick them up in the the notes if you want them. The Lord's Prayer is an Adventist prayer. Why do I say that? How does it begin? Our Father which art in heaven. And what? Thy kingdom come. And the prayer goes on in anticipation of the coming kingdom of glory. And the heart of that prayer is forgive us for our sins, isn't that it? Keep us from temptation. Lead us in a path of righteousness in anticipation of a coming kingdom. And finally the prayer finishes up here. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory for how long? Ever and ever. Amen. It's just let it finish prayer, isn't it? Of course. I must drop over some other reasons. Let me move down to the communion service. What did the Apostle Paul say? As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, what do we do? We show the Lord's death till he 
comes. The death of Jesus points forward to the resurrection of the redeemed, doesn't it? Because he rose, we too shall rise. Jesus said to those disciples, I will not drink the bread and the wine with you until I drink it anew where? In my Father's kingdom with you. So the communion service anticipates, points forward to that moment of glory. It connects the first advent and the second advent together. There's no point talking about the first advent unless we talk about the second, is there? If we only had the first, we'd be all men without hope, wouldn't we? But on the other hand, there's no point talking about the second without talking about the first, because the first, through the cross of Jesus, opens a door to the second, doesn't it? And through the cross, we become citizens of the kingdom of heaven now. And that's why in the book of Revelation, we have the wonderful truth. Already, already, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. When you take that communion cup, the wine in your hand, it represents the shared blood of Jesus, and the bread that represents his broken body, it reminds us what he did for us to open the door of salvation to all mankind. Isn't that it? But I'll tell you something. That wine in the cup, what does it represent? What does it represent? You know, it represents the blood of Jesus, but there's something behind that, doesn't isn't there? Love, I used to think that. Life, yes. I want to tell you something. It represents the wrath of God. That may challenge you. It does rep- represent the love of God too. But if you go through Scripture in the Old Testament, then you say, the wine cup of God's wrath, the Scripture speaks of. Book of Revelation speaks about the wine of the wrath of God that are poured out of our mixture. Jesus said to those disciples, are you able to drink the cup that I have to drink? When Jesus died on the cross for you and for me, he absorbed all the wrath of God, the punishment against my sin that I might go free. Isn't that it? He was a substitute there at the cross. He made propitiation for your sin and mine. Propitiation simply means he turned it away, he turned it aside from us by taking it upon himself. That which he must pronounce upon the culprit, he pronounces upon himself. To Christ, it was a cursed cup, but to you and I, it's a cup of blessing, isn't it? The wonderful substitute who died in my place. And that's why in the New Testament we have the powerful truth when we accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord in our lives, the word is already, already we are members of the family of God. Paul says members of the family of heaven living on earth. Paul says another place we are citizens of the heavenly kingdom already, already. Have you got that in your life? The alreadiness of being accepted with Jesus, members of his kingdom, members of the family of God, living on earth, waiting for the day when he will gather the citizens together. 
in the eternal kingdom of glory. Isn't that it? You know, I talked to those young ladies. I, I, I knew that I had to be very careful here because they didn't understand this. So different as they understand the Mass. But I told them about the powerful meaning of this. I saw tears come down their cheeks. They never understood it like this before. That he is a powerful substitute. And that which cursed was a cursed him was a blessing to you and to me. God so loved the world. Yes, indeed. Well, you say to me, why are you a Seventh-day Adventist? Why are you a Sabbath-keeping Adventist? Well, let's go back to the very beginning, like we did with Advent, and ask ourselves the question, who was the first Sabbath-keeper of history? We know that Enoch was the first Advent preacher of history. Who was the first Sabbath keeper? Adam and Eve? I think we can go back just a little bit more than that. Who was it? God himself. God himself. The creator is a divine exemplar whose example he wants us to follow. When he made man in his own image, then he made the Sabbath. You know, the powerful thing is this. When God made the Sabbath, it's so different of the rest of creation. The scripture says he spoke the world into existence. He said, let there be light, and there was light, didn't he? Let the, the waters rise up, the earth rise above the waters, and so on. You know that. And that was the first day, the second day, and the third. Always God spoke. But when it came to the Sabbath, he didn't speak. What did he do? He acted. He acted. Something powerfully different here. He, rest, he himself rested. God himself blessed it. God himself sanctified it. it. literally means he set it apart for man. This is the doing of God. By the way, when you come to the New Testament, it makes it so clear that who is the creator of the world? Jesus himself was the creator of the world. It was Jesus who blessed it, who sanctified it, who set it apart for man. And although men may have a hundred debates, write a hundred books, it is still an eternal truth that the only day Jesus ever set aside for worship, the only day he ever blessed and sanctified was the seventh day Sabbath. There's not a line, not the slightest hint or inference in Scripture that he placed any emphasis on any other day of the week. In fact, Jesus never even mentioned the first day of the week once in all his ministry. Not once. On one occasion, the Pharisees accused the disciples of breaking the Sabbath. You see, they'd been passing through the wheat field with Jesus and they, they plucked some wheat and rubbed it in their hands and, and, and ate it. Now, according to the rabbinical rules, not God's rule, but rabbinical rules, that that was breaking the Sabbath. 
They were harvesting, you see, <laughs> working. Dearing me. They had manufa manufactured so many rules and regulations that they'd taken the joy and blessing out of it. And so now here they were accusing these disciples with Jesus of transgressing the Sabbath. And you can imagine the tension. And Jesus drew into their midst. There's something about the presence of Jesus that captures the attention of men. And every eye was upon him and silence fell upon the group. And Jesus proclaimed powerfully, authentically, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What does that mean? The word Lord in the English language simply means owner. He is the owner of it. Number one. How did he how could he claim that? Because he then went on to said, and he made it. Ha ha, he made it. And then he said he made it for who? For man. Powerful truth. If you had no other scripture, no other text reference in scripture, that would be enough. That is powerfully Jesus putting his imprimatur on it. He is the one who owned it, who made it, and he made it for man. Powerful declaration. You know, they wanted to kill him for making that proclamation. For claiming to be Lord of the Sabbath, the creator of the Sabbath. They wanted to kill him for it. And so many today want to take it from him, don't they? Scholars recognize that when Jesus said he made it for man, that he was reaching right back to creation. When you think of made it, you immediately think of creation, don't you? And he made it for man. And you know what, who the man was he originally made it for? Adam. Adam means the man. And Adam was the father of a whole human race. But there's something else even more powerful in this text. He made it for man. In the Greek it says he made it for ho-anthropos. That's the Greek word. ho the man. Anthropos, what does that make you think of? Anthropology, doesn't it? Which is a study of, it's a Greek international word, universal word for all mankind. Particularly as it focuses on the origin of man. Anthropology. Where do we come from? And Jesus is using this universal word. The Sabbath was made for whole of mankind. Adam, the father of all mankind. Powerful argument, isn't it? Powerful truth. And Jesus proclaimed it so powerfully, so clearly. And it was Jesus who said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Simple as that, isn't it? And at the heart of those commandments, the very central phrase of the commandments, the seventh day is the Sabbath of who? The Lord thy God. God's day. The one he made. I have three questions for you. 
What day did the Old Testament prophets observe and worship on? Sabbath, of course, they were all Sabbath keepers. Everybody accepts that. There's no debate here. All theologians all accept that all the Old Testament prophets were, were Sabbath keepers. There's no, no question here. But we have discovered already this morning all the prophets were Adventists, weren't they? They emphasized the stress to return of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, what kind of Adventists were they? They were Sabbath-keeping Adventists. And I saw a flicker go in those girls' eyes as they studied the truth of it. <coughs> Second question, what day did Jesus keep? Of course, he was Lord of the Sabbath. Luke 4, 16, as it was his custom, and he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to preach. In fact, it was on the Sabbath he launched his mission. It was on the Sabbath in the synagogue he powerfully launched his mission to save mankind. And there are many texts in the New Testament speak of Jesus as a, as a Sabbath worshiper and keeper. Of course he would be. He was the Lord of the Sabbath. But we have learned something else this morning. That Jesus was the head Adventist. So what kind of Adventist was he? It's so simple, isn't it? He was a Sabbath-keeping Advent. In fact, he, the scripture says he was Lord of the Sabbath, out of his own very words, and Lord of the Advent. He puts them together. He puts them together. The apostles. What day did they keep following the ascension of Jesus to glory, to heaven? What day did they keep and worship on? What book of the New Testament particularly should we go to, to to understand how to answer that question? The book of Acts. Why the book of Acts? Because it was a history book of the early Christian church. It, it, it's a history of, of their whole worship, their lifestyle, of their building and establishing a new infant church that Jesus inspired them to do through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Their worship, the whole function of a church is to, is spelled out clearly in the book of Acts. If you, when you go home, you take your Bible and begin about chapter 13 of Acts. Have a pencil in your hand and every time you see the Sabbath, you underline it. Do you know you'll be underlining and you'll be underlining and you'll be underlining. And it'll go to something like, and the next Sabbath, and the next Sabbath, and the next Sabbath. That's how it reads. And the next Sabbath, the whole church came together. And the next Sabbath, the Greeks said, Paul, will you preach to us the next Sabbath? And the whole synagogue was filled with the Greeks the next Sabbath as he preached to them. It's interesting, isn't it? There's no reference in the book of Acts to worship on the first day of the week. Not one, but always the Sabbath, the Sabbath. Do you see who's on the side of the Advent? On the side of the, of the Sabbath. Those disciples were stressing the Advent. They were Sabbath-keeping Adventists. They followed Jesus, Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of the Advent. All the Old Testament prophets, all the apostles, 
and towering above them all, the blessed man of Calvary himself, that settled it for me. How about you? I must follow Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus looking down to the end of time, right to the end of time before he came, come back, said he described his end time faithful followers as those who keep the commandments of God and keep the faith of Jesus. Faith of Jesus simply means the teachings of Jesus. They follow Jesus, his word, his teachings, his truth, his commandments. Simple, isn't it? So simple. Let me conclude. Two great truths as old as time. The Sabbath and the Advent. Each came to us from Eden. Each exist together. Each complement each other. They represent two important theologies of Scripture that run all through Scripture. The Advent tells us our future with Jesus. Much detail is given in Scripture concerning the Advent of Jesus. What will occur when Jesus comes in glory? The advent of Jesus speaks of the great moment of the resurrection, of glorification, of mortal putting on immortality, being made like unto his glorious body, of ascension to heaven, finally redeemed in the new earth. That is what the advent is about, isn't it? The final fulfillment of the mission of Jesus when he came to this world as the saviour of the world. On the other hand, the Sabbath tells us that our Jesus, the compassionate saviour, was also the awesome creator. And why is that important? Because only a creator can do the things that Jesus promised. Isn't that it? Amen. Only a creator can perform the mighty deeds of the gospel. Only a creator can, can bring to pass that which the story of scripture promises. Only a creator can be the world's redeemer. This means that he is awesome and powerful. Ah, the Sabbath reminds us that our great Redeemer is indeed the mighty creator. That means that he is mighty to save. And the scripture says, is anything too hard for the Lord? I spoke the world into existence. I stretched it out the universe. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Mighty to save. His ability to redeem is to be measured by the vastness of his creation. Do you see that? These two great truths.
are linked together. And this is important. These two great truths, the Sabbath and the Advent, are linked together in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of the Advent. Please understand, these two truths cannot exist apart from Jesus. Take these two truths away from the person of Jesus and he ceases to be. He cannot be. These two great truths proclaiming the mighty creator became the world's great redeemer. Thank you, Jesus, what do you say? Every Sabbath, and the word Sabbath means rest, is the Savior's invitation to rest in his love, to rest in his redeeming grace and love, to rest in his forgiveness, to accept it as a gift. Not something I can earn, but something he's provided for me through the cross. Opening the door to the hope of salvation when he comes in glory. Simple as that. Every Sabbath is a new reason to praise him as my God and my King. How great thou art. The great creator who became the world's redeemer. To rest with unreserved confidence in his salvation promise, I will come again. Because he can do it. Isn't that it? Being the mighty creator. I want to close with a little thought. I go back to my dear old dad. He now rests in his grave. He's a wonderful saintly Christian. I miss him very much. I used to love his prayers. And there's one little, little verse that I used to often hear come from my father's lips in prayer. And I've got it here. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan and reached across the span and brought it down to man. I closed with a little addendum of those young ladies. I therefore joined the oldest church with the largest membership, with its truth unchanging, truth founded in Jesus Christ, my beloved Lord, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Praise the Lord. A very stirring message. Makes you want to be a Seventh-day Adventist, doesn't it?
Let us rise to sing more praise to the Lord. Our hymn 673, May God be with you. Sorry. Over yonder. 431. Got a little ahead of myself. 